This episode of One Hit Thunder is brought to you by DistroKid. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Formed in 1989 in Texas, a group of Southern rockers crafted one of the earwormiest songs of the post-grunge era. Possum Kingdom was an inescapable hit throughout 1995 and 1996, remembered for its iconic guitar and bass lines and its repetitive closing bridge of Do You Wanna Die? Chris is busy with punchline work the next few weeks, so myself, producer Matt, took time this week to sit down with my college friend and local DJ, AJ Santini, to discuss if the Toadies brought the one-hit thunder or if we want to die when we hear it. So the toadies. Yeah. So you picked the toadies, huh? Yes, I did. I was hoping we would get to the Tony toadies eventually. Yeah, I knew I knew you would, and and that was kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it too, uh, with you, Matt, because the toadies are one of those bands, at least for me, if I if I just want to talk about the reasons I picked them, like they're one of those bands that like this album doesn't have a bad second, not just a bad song, it doesn't have a bad second on it, like even like the feedback. It, it, intros or outros or what everything like means something and belongs there it's like perfect it's a perfect record uh rubberneck and i don't understand why this song was a one-hit wonder or this band and it wasn't without trying do you know how many singles they released off this album <laughs> uh let's see I, i'm gonna try and guess we have you know possum kingdom tyler i burn no not i burn mr love uh backslider away so what? Six, five, five or six? six. Yeah, six. I come to, I come from the water, and I come from the water, which, oh, which is like my favorite guitar riff of all time. Yeah, it's it's insane. The band formed in 1989. Okay. And they were going at this for a while because this album didn't come out until 94. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is re-recorded tracks from the demo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which I love the name of their their demo, too. It's like, it's not real leather. It's pleather. It's pleather. (laughs) (laughs) They were, someone, uh, when I was looking up the band, I saw on Wiki uh, that one reviewer said that the band was distinctly grudge and distinctly from Texas. Yes. Which is a great way to sum up this band. Exactly. And think about like some of the bands at the time, like late 80s, early 90s, Texas bands. I mean, really, they are distinct. Butthole Surfers is the first one that comes to mind. And they open for Butthole Surfers a couple times, which totally makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. Because they have that weird, like, 
they're not total they're not as weird as the butthole surfers like the butthole surfers who i mean obviously stay tuned future episodes (laughs) i hope so like but you know the butthole surfers were so weird and they had such a vast catalog of like i mean they they're a band that like literally is like the heavy metal equivalent of avant-garde music Mm -hmm. like toadies wasn't that far into that spectrum but they were definitely doing a lot more than like your usual post grunge band right and 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 saying they formed in 89 which is the year you know bleach came out by nirvana on sub pop so you know thinking about that like they formed at a time you know they were there were a couple nerds that worked in a record store i know uh, you know todd and lisa worked in the record store uh together right and uh i think they were the one of their guitarists so i'm blanking on the name of their other guitarist. But we'll just say the other guitarist. The other guitarist. Come to I, I apologize <laughs> if the Toadies ever get around to listen to this. I uh, know that you're <laughs> way more important than that. But, you know, that, uh, you know, I think his, he was saying the influences were things like Butthole Surfers were the, you know, the Pixies, uh, which you hear all over the record. I mean, the, this is a band that distinctly took everything and, and enca- encapsulated everything from the grunge era and then made it their own and like filtered it through at least lyrically through Todd's like religious overly religious upbringing. Yeah. Because there's, there's something that, so here's a fun fact with me and the toadies is that the toadies is how I first heard of Reverend Horton heat mm. because they thank Reverend Horton heat for his spiritual guidance in the thank you. Yes. And I was like, who is Reverend Horton heat? <laughs> I started digging into like their back catalog as well, but there is there's like it's like a rockabilly band without the rockabilly. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that's a great point because it, it's just got the it's that very like like you know who the Toadies really should have been on tour with is Southern Culture on the Skids. Yes, like like they had that same very Southern rock and roll, but like blend it with like the anger and angst of grunge. Sure. Yeah, because this album's dark. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> like, well, yeah. I mean, and and speaking of Reverend Horton Heat, uh, something that I actually just found out today, doing you know a little bit of research for this podcast, um, was that they opened with Mexican Hairless, the instrumental, due to the fact that Reverend Horton Heat opened one of their albums with an instrumental. And all the label completely was like, no, you should not do that. That's the worst idea ever. People are going to take this album, listen to it realize there's no lyrics it's just noise and then take it back to like the store like a sam goody or the wall and just want their money back because this is nonsense and what a paranoid fear because like mexican hairless is like a minute and 15 seconds <laughs> yeah and then you go right into mr love which like starts vocals within like 30 seconds right <laughs> like it's not like they had like a seven minute instrumental to kick off the record right and and <laughs> i think that, that i mean that i that kind of idea is what we you know we were talking about as this we were setting up for to talk about this episode was you know just the the complete fear and control that record companies had at this time and how much of like really the toadies demise i don't want to say demise because they didn't fail but like they they didn't really have a hit as big as possum kingdom and didn't release another album for six years for yeah for six years but, until, but yeah. that's interscope's fault right like that's the thing like i didn't realize that i think in my brain i knew that it took a while for the second album to come out but like over the years, I rewrote that. And I was like, yeah. no, no, no. The second album came out like two or three years later and it just didn't didn't hit. But it's like, no, I was in I was in elementary school when I heard Possum Kingdom, and I was in high school when there was a teacher that knew that I liked music. And sometimes she would get random CDs 
I don't know where she was getting them from, but she gave me two CDs, and the one was SR seventy one. This is like their debut album. She's sure, like, with Right Now? Yeah, she's like, I have no use for this. <laughs> with but, the robot on the cover? But the other one was a one-song sampler of Heaven Above, Hell Below. And that's oh. it. It was just that song and nothing else. And I was like, oh my God, this next Toadies album is going to be fucking amazing. <laughs> and it was like another year before it came out, and I didn't even know it was out until I saw it at a CD store right. one day. And, and I'm sitting here, like, I the only thing I thought of was that, like, looking at the timeline, because... I, I, I'm picturing like the year 2000. Like for me, I, I'm graduating high school in yeah. the year 2000. So in the year 2000, I went, you know, middle school, Possum Kingdom and Rubberneck comes out. I get to the end of my high school career without any new music at all from the fucking Toadies. Yeah. None. And so they completely dropped off the radar. And you're thinking that time, like 99, 2000s, you have Blink 182, Enemy of the State. You have like the pop punk movement. You have obviously like every. But music's completely different come 2000. Right. Yeah. Completely different. I mean, you you know, you have the boy band takeover and the, the Britney and all that stuff. And popularity wise, like rock is, is, is off the is off the radar for most people. So 2001, you know, I mean, I was in college and I'm thinking like Eminem, Marshall Mathers LP was probably yeah. like what I was bumping at that time. I'm not going back to the toadies. Like I'm buying Sean John because I'm, <laughs> trying, I'm apparently trying to fit in. You know, so it, it's like, you know, how how much of it was the weight? Yeah. I, I think one of the things that's worth calling out is, uh, and I made a note to bring this up, was that during the time between Rubberneck and Heaven Above, Hell Below, there was... Like, I would say the Toadies got themselves into this nice little niche of, like, compilation soundtrack appearances because they were on the Cable Guy soundtrack. Yeah. They were on the Escape from L.A. soundtrack. They were on the Crow 2 City of Angels soundtrack. Yes. And it was all original songs. It wasn't like they just pulled songs off of Rubberneck and threw them on there. They wrote new music for all those. And then uh, one of my secret favorite albums from the 90s, and I'm curious if you had this too, because we could go on a whole tangent about it, is the Saturday Morning Cartoon's Greatest yes, Hits album. Yes, absolutely. The, like, I didn't really love their cover of the Groovy Ghoulies theme, but like that CD- But it's on there. That CD is amazing. Dude, for, <laughs> like, for, I mean, first off, just the fact that the video itself, I think- where they talked about this and they got this idea, Drew Barrymore hosted, which, you know, that that is an obsession of mine. But then you get to the CD and you have, uh, what, Butthole Surfers. Yeah, Butthole Surfers doing Underdog. Yeah. Yes, Underdog. Who did Gigantor? That was Helmet. Helmet, Helmet did, did Gigantor. Gigantor. You have Sublime doing Hong Kong Fooey. Which sounds so, it's so good. It's, yeah. You've got Wax doing that version of Happy Happy Joy Joy yes. that just sounds like insanity for like three minutes. <laughs> like it is the craziest. It is still like one of my favorite covers to play people because it's insanity. Well, the, it is the musical equivalent of what John Kay was doing with the animation. Yeah. Oh, it ends with just them screaming. Yeah. Like, I think I if I play any clips in this, it's got to just be the last, like, 30 seconds of that happy, happy joy yeah. <laughs> cover, because it's insane. Like a fly mare and a bumblebee I told you to shoot, but you didn't believe me Why didn't you believe me? It is so good. And yeah, you have, and, and it's funny because there are a lot of shows that I know the themes to that I did not grow up with because they were a little before my time. Oh, pretty much anything from uh, the banana splits. Yeah, and... that whole, that guy. Yeah. Like, uh, Sig, Sigmund, uh, 
what the heck is it? It's going to drive me nuts. Because they be they became friends with one of my bo- like my boss when I lived in L.A. Yes. and that was like a big deal. It was like she would take photos with them. Yeah, they did Sigmund the Sea Monster, which is how I first heard, that was the first time I ever heard Tripping Daisy. Oh was yeah, was their cover of that song, and I was like, this is great. And like it it was years before I connected him with a uh, polyphonic spree because I was always a polyphonic. Like the second I heard polyphonic spree, I was all in. I know a lot of people hated him, but I was like all in on polyphonic. Oh spree. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, Sid and Marty Croft. Sid and Marty Croft. Yeah. There we go. I'm like, Sigmund, Sigmund. <laughs> so we'll Sigmund the Sea Monster, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listeners, if you haven't heard that album, you can probably get it for like 10 cents on Amazon. And I don't know that it exists digitally. No, it doesn't. So you have to physically buy a CD, but it's yeah. going to be worth every penny. Um, so here's the big... Th- so here's the thing. I, was t- I warned you about this. Yeah. So the single was released... On August 30th, 1994. Okay. It peaked. It hit its peak on the modern rock charts on November 25th, 1995. So over a year and some change from when the single was first released. (laughs) Oh, my God. What? How? What? uh. Do you want to know what else was on the charts at at the time that it peaked? I want to say like Seven Mary Three and Bush and all that shit. So sort of. Okay. Go so ahead. at number five, they mm-hmm. peaked at four. Okay. At number five was Geek Stink Breath for Green Day. Yeah. So they Insomnia. As, My Insomnia, favorite Green Day album, by the way. Yeah, Insomniac's great. Just dropped. Then it was the Toadies at four. Number three was Name by the Goo Goo Dolls. Okay. Good jam. I'm starting to remember who I'm dating at this time. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. Good ballad. <laughs> number two, Smashing Pumpkins, just coming back with Bullet with a Butterfly Wing. Yeah. Yeah. At number one, your favorite band, My Friends by Red Hot Chili Peppers, was the top Fuck of the that. modern rock charts. Ugh. <laughs> uh, yeah, see, and you know, too, and I love, I, I need this documented, that one of my favorite quotes is Nick Cave saying, I'm constantly looking at my radio and saying, what the fuck is this shit? And the answer is always the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And well, all the, I will say this, though. The Dave Navarro album of Red Hot Chili Peppers is gets a pass from me. I don't know why, but I, lo- I think it's, maybe it's like the, if it's the Iggy Pop reference or the song Warped or the, or the punkiness of it, but for some reason that uh, One Hot Minute album I love. So here's a fun fact about me, actually, is that I uh, was kind of sheltered from music for the first couple of years of my life. Like mm-hmm. for for a long time, the only music that I knew existed was like Bruce Springsteen and Meatloaf because that was like what was most popular in my parents' car. So when my cousin my cousin went from rock music to hip hop, and just was like, I don't even want my CDs anymore. And he gave me all of his albums. Oh. And that was my first exposure to like any music that wasn't my parents' music. So he gave me Nevermind, In Utero, Dookie, Kerplunk, A Thousand Smooth Out Slappy Hours, and Super Unknown by SoundCloud. Wow, okay. So I got those six albums. Those were the first, and the Wayne's World 2 soundtrack. Those were the first seven CDs I ever owned. That's awesome. I didn't know that Kurt Cobain was dead at the time. (laughs) So there's all these bands where like, Everyone else's first exposure to them was like their hit. But for me, it was like the first song by the Red Hot Chili Peppers I ever heard was Warped. Like, yeah. Like the first song by Smashing Pumpkins I ever heard was Bullet with a Butterfly. Wing. Okay. Like I just was just off. I was right after Grunge had hit its peak and was like transitioning out. And like all these bands were putting out like their last huge record. Right. So yeah. like. So I was like just in that 1990, like end of 95, beginning of 96, like 
bubble. Yeah. Where everything was. Because it was like shifting over to like pop punk. Yeah. And I was, I mean, Green Day was like, it's Green Day still like top 10 bands of all time for me. Because it's just like, I, I've always said with Green Day and with Weezer, I feel like the worst album by either one of those bands is usually still better than most of like, like 90% of bands at their best. Sure. Like, yeah. Like they just, like a lot of people are shitting on the newest Green Day record. It's not great, but like, I don't know. I, it's different. And I, I said this too. Sadly, I sent a message to a, a Warner executive who completely just shit on me with the message. And I was like, this album, because I heard it when it first came out, and I said, this album would be a great The Network album. Yeah. Because I thought it, it would it would be a phenomenal Green Day side project. I don't know that it fits in the Green Day canon of like what the... But 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 I can't I can't shit on it because it's good music. It's it's good. It's just not green. It's just I mean at this point they are a brand and they are a sound and they've they've carved a niche in in you know the popular culture and I don't I this is a little different so it's hard to to take it under the Green Day label. I would I would say it's similar to like when when Blink One Eighty Two put out Neighborhoods. I remember telling someone that it was the the uh, boxcar racer follow-up that I always wanted. Like, yes. It didn't sound like a Blink-22 record, but man, I loved Boxcar Racer, and that's what it reminded me of, so I was still all in on that album. Sure. And I know people who hate that album. They hate that album, they hate the self-titled, and I find, like, they're not, the. they're definitely, I'm never going to ride or die for those albums on in the discography of right. Blink, but like... But it's, it's better than a lot, you know, a lot of the stuff that's out there. No, yeah, one hundred percent. I will take "Hearts All Gone" interlude into "Hearts All Gone" all day long, <laughs> all day long. I will, I will play that on repeat, and and and, but whatever. The biggest issue with "Neighborhoods" was probably that the single that they released for it was the worst track on that album. Yeah, because that "Up All Night" song is not good. No, but like "Ghosts on the Dance Floor," like that song's a fucking bop. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like that song rules. It is. So let's talk about what was happening in nineteen ninety four. Okay, so I looked up two things i wanted to see a what were the best-selling singles of of i said 2004 but 1994 absolutely and what were the top 10 best-selling albums okay so first is the best singles uh i just grabbed three of the five because they were noteworthy ones uh bruce springsteen's streets of philadelphia oh yeah was one of the best-selling singles rednecks cotton eye joe <laughs> was around this time yep and all for one i swear uh yo yeah okay but then you look at what the best-selling records are. And when we get to number one, I'm going to ask you a question because I'm curious if this is based on the sales in 1994 or adjust it for like circuit, like best-selling records of 1994 according to record sales up to 2020. Gotcha. So number 10, Nine Inch Nails, Downward Spiral. Yeah. Side note, there's not a single album on this top 10 list that's not an absolute must own. Yeah. Like 94 is a fantastic year. <sighs> yeah. Uh, number nine, one of my first albums, Soundgarden, Super Unknown. Okay. Yep. Number eight was Blur, Park Life. This is in America. I think it's worldwide. Oh, okay. Possibly. Number seven, actually, I almost guarantee it was worldwide based okay. on what's that number two. Um, <laughs> number seven, Nazilmatic. Okay. Classic. The only rap record on this top 10 list, which well, yeah. is crazy. Uh, number six, another one of my first albums, Green Day Dookie. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, number five, Nirvana, MTV Unplugged. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that of course that got a huge boost because of his his passing. Number four, which is the most recent of these albums that I purchased, and I was very late to the party on this, but Portishead Dummy. Yes, which is incredible. But it, it, another one that makes me think worldwide versus just in the United States. Ha, yeah, because yeah, that was huge in Britain. Uh, number three was Weezer, self titled. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The blue album. Yeah, yeah. 
You said self-titled. I'm like, that's three different, four yeah. different albums. Okay. Uh, number two, Oasis, definitely, maybe. Definitely worldwide, yeah. And here's the one where I'm curious if it's worldwide and as of 1994, or if they're counting like all of the years of sales. It says that the number one best-selling record in 1994 was Jeff Buckley Grace. I find that, like, I could see that now. Yeah. Obviously, Where, where I was, is this list from? That's on Wiki. So we're based okay. on Wikipedia. Okay. But <laughs> side note, like, Trust I'll I'll trust Wikipedia with a grain of salt because yeah. I was checking up on a wrestling pay per view result the other day, and it said that Vince McMahon had beaten God that night, and it was last <laughs> night. So like someone was having some fun on Wiki. So yeah. you, obviously all of it take with a grain of salt. Sure. Let's see then because I mean Jeff Buckley. I mean because Grace was re- Grace was released posthumously, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. So. If Grace was released posthumously, then there might... Was Hallelujah... You would have known this better than I would have. Mm -hmm. Because, A, I wasn't listening to the radio at this time, as we've established. It was the following year that I really got into the radio. Mm -hmm. Was Hallelujah big in 94 the way it is in 2020? Not to me, but then again, you know, like my... So, I mean, at the time... I would have hated that song at nine. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> you know I mean? like, well yeah, it wouldn't have registered for me, and and it didn't until years later. I mean, I like the Smashing Pumpkins, but like, you know, I think that's as far like I wasn't into like Buckley or Shoegaze or like you know anything that was kind of like because I I mean you can pro- probably tell just by this couple minutes of listening to me or you know I am an ADHD unmedicated yes. coffee addict and was as a kid too. Yes. So like seven minute droney songs is not going to win you over. No. And you know, <laughs> and, and any of it, even some of the originals lover, I should have come over or last goodbye. Like I would, I wouldn't have, I would have been bored to tears by that. Yeah. Um, I feel like I was just listening to that record the other day and there's like maybe two or three songs where, cause from when I think of Jeff Buckley, I go to lover, I should have come yeah. or, or hallelujah. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. That's Jeff Buckley. Yeah. There's like two or three songs that really rock on there that I forget about. Uh-huh. Like so real. Mm-hmm. Like built. Oh yeah. But like I forget about it because to me it's like Jeff Buckley is like just a dude with an with a guitar hanging out in the studio by himself, just like fiddling away and singing beautifully. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, that list can't be right. I can't I that's yeah. that's how I felt. Uh but one last thing, just like Jeff Buckley, another I feel like there's a long list of people where it's like the what ifs. What like and Jeff Buckley's a big what if oh, for yeah. me. It's like him. Tim, Kurt Cobain, obviously, and then for me, it's like Shannon from Blind Melon, Shannon Hoon, yeah, and uh, Bradley from Sublime. Like I, they're probably the four where I'm like, I would love to know like what would have happened. Sure, uh, I I think it was. I mean, you and I are both big uh, Clusterman. Fans. I was yeah, I was just going to reference yeah. Chuck Clusterman wrote now. Yeah, that article. But yeah, he when he. I mean, I always think about where he said like there could be a world where like Kurt Cobain pulls an Eric Clapton unplugged. Where it's like he's just a dude in his forties, just hanging out in his cardigan, playing like a weird lounge version of "Rape Me." Like, yeah, like, <laughs> right, exactly. Like it, it could, it could have happened. That yeah. could have been a future where, like, we look back. Like I think it was like he was proposing, or no, it was if Rivers Cuomo died mm. after Pinkerton, but Kurt Cobain lived, like didn't die. Like, would we hold up Weezer the way we hold up Nirvana, yeah. but then complain that Nirvana, like, lost their cool after In Utero? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> like, <laughs> absolutely. And and that brings and that brings up a perfect point that I wanted to make about the Toadies when I was talking about, like, the year 2000, 2001, what was going on. It's like, the, I, I feel like, because I think the idea that Todd had was like, all right, we're going to make this record. I'm working at a record store. I talk, He said he talked to his boss. I'm going to take a year off to write this record, do a little bit of a tour because the record label is going to want that, whatever. Yeah. And then I'm just going to go back and work at the record store. Yeah, he just had a story to tell. Right. 
And so I think that 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 loss of time, like in the market and like the sound, like the sound doesn't really necessarily evolve from the band. Like it kind of, they don't need to. I mean, they're they're a niche. Like the to- like we talked about, like the Toadies are kind of like a niche for their time and their place and their location geographically. And you know, I don't I don't know that I don't know I don't know that if they had continued on without the break, if we would think fondly back on Rubberneck because yeah. it's it's it it sits in its own little bubble of time. I think that's interesting that the band broke up too. Like the the reason why the band broke up, I think, makes me really like. Todd Lewis, mm-hmm. which was that the bassist Lisa mm-hmm. decided she was done with the band because she could she saw the writing on the wall. She saw that Interscope had like zero interest in actually promoting their band anymore. Yeah. And was like, hey, I'm not gonna not make money on a thing that used to make money <laughs> and right. spend months and years away from people that I care about to like have a record label not even promote the albums that we're putting out anymore. Right. And then Todd was just like, well, if you're quitting, then let's just break up the band. And it's like, that's like, I respect that that level of solidarity. Yeah. But then they came back in 2006. Yeah. And they pretty much have just been putting out records pretty consistent. Like every like three or four years, right. it's a new Toadies record. I haven't listened to any of them. Really? <laughs> I listened to Hell, Heaven Above, Hell Below. Right. And I think that's where I stopped. I didn't even know that. So Interscope, they recorded an album. And I'm blanking on the name. I want to say Feeler. Uh, yes. So they recorded Feeler to be the second album. Interscope said no. Oh. So then they wrote Heaven Above, Hell Below. And then after they reunited, uh, let's see where I wrote it down here. They would release the second album, Feeler, in 2010. But Interscope wouldn't ha- let them have access to any of the original masters. So they literally had to re-record the entire album. Oh, man. To put it out. But like again, like that's they clearly were like, look, fans want to he-, like their band that I can tell gives a shit about their fans. Oh yeah, and like I don't, I I'm not gonna sit here and pretend that I think that the Toadies are like selling out arenas anywhere. No, but I'm sure that they're playing nice small clubs to like a crowd that's like excited to see them, and probably mostly in the South because I saw them with Local H. Uh, I would say three years ago, two, three years that's ago. A, that's a pretty solid, like, those are two bands that I would see live That's together. a one-two hit. And, yeah. I mean, Local H obviously could be argued as a one-hit oh, as well. Um, oh, fu- definitely future episode of Local H. Oh, yeah, which, <laughs> uh, you know, definitely do because they're phenomenal. That, that's, and that's a band that, like, I saw live only, not even having heard the album back in the day, like, only being aware of Bound for the Floor. Yeah. Uh, obviously, as, like, like the copacetic song. Yeah. Because um, that taught me that word. But uh, <laughs> You and a whole generation. Just, like, lives, uh, you know. Um, placenta? Placenta, thank you. <laughs> yes, I, I don't even know the name of the song. It's the placenta song to me. <laughs> as a DJ, that's a terrible thing. But it's it, it was. It was one of those things where, you know, you saw these both these bands, and that was... You could see, like, both of them, the Toadies and Local H, were amazing live, had a great catalog that no one was no one knew, cared. aware about, yeah. you know, aware of or, or cared about anything. And it's, it does. It sucks because both those bands deserve uh, a, a loyal fan base. I mean, if, if nothing else, let's bring it back to Jeff Buckley one more time. Yeah. People look at Grace as this masterpiece debut album. Sure. 
And I genuinely, people are going to laugh when they hear this, but I genuinely think Rubberneck should be held up in that same regard. I think it is a yeah. masterpiece album. And yeah, so if, you know, if if Todd had died the way he described the cult members in the song I Burn Dying, where yeah. he had just thrown himself on the fire after recording the album to fucking get somewhere, you know, some ethereal plane in some higher place, then yeah, uh, I think Rubberneck would have been looked at. But just, you know, we're, we're talking about a lot of people who died untimely and i think unfortunately not unfortunately but i mean that obviously raises the mythos and the importance of the artist because you have this lingering what if well and i'm glad that you brought up i burn because that's such an important song to possum kingdom because mm -hmm. possum kingdom is written as almost a sequel yes or a continuation to the song i burn which i think is interesting when you think about the placement on the album though because I, I burn is a perfect closing track yeah for the record but uh, story-wise, it really does make sense for it to go from like, like uh, let me get the exact quote. But he, he said that uh, for him, Possum Kingdom was about one of the people just becoming smoke. Yes. And then he goes to the Possum Kingdom and tries to find someone to join him. Yes, which is a, an actual lake in Texas, like North Texas. And like the lyrics to the song are so sinister. They're so creepy. And I kind of I kind of love. Yeah. Well, and everything about the uh, everything about it makes sense. I mean, as a, from a songwriting perspective, like it, it, the drums are just so tribal. Yeah. And it, it, it like he said, he, he's walking down the street and like a bush is on fire and then like a car is on fire. And then all of a sudden he gets to this house where this party's supposed to be. This is the dream he had, apparently, that spawned the song. You get to the place where all the cult members are and like everything's on fire and they're throwing themselves in the fire. So it's just this like build up and this this the heat is intensifying and your, your heart's beating with a boom, boom, psh, boom, yeah. You know, it's just it's everything about it just speaks to you on a level that is maybe not of this world. Can we get Ari Aster to like do a film adaptation of I Burn into Possum Kingdom? Because I'd watch the shit out of him taking his little hereditary midsummer vision yeah. and just bleeding it into like, okay, this is about a cult that this dude just happens to walk in on them burning themselves in and a Texas suburb and is just haunted by them. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. But I, I love, I was talking about this song with someone at work today and I was like, I was like, yeah, we're doing the toadies. He's like, oh, yeah. The yeah. And I was like, yeah, man, that song, like you've got that opening riff. Yeah. The drums kick in and it's just like, but then for me, it's that lead riff, that dude. Oh, my God. It's so like it just gets into your brain. And then you've got that little bass lick in the middle of the song. Oh, yeah. And, boom, 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 which, boom, boom. It's just like a driving force. And I, I was like. I mentioned that to my coworker who is a bassist. I'm like, you got that bass line, that bum, 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 bum. And uh, I go back to my desk to work, and someone who sits near me sent me a message on Slack that said, were you just humming the bass line to uh, Hashpipe? It's <laughs> like, oh, shit. That is, it's almost the same riff. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I never thought of that. Hey there, One Hit Thunder listeners. Are you ready to take your music to the next level? Well, get ready to rock because this episode is brought to you by DistroKid, the ultimate digital music distribution service for artists like you. With DistroKid, you can easily upload your songs or albums to online stores and streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, and YouTube Music, reaching fans all around the globe. But that's just the beginning. DistroKid offers a ton of awesome features like HyperFollow, which helps you promote your releases and get pre-saves on your songs all for free. But wait... There's more. 
The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. With the app, you can manage your releases, track your streaming stats, and even withdraw your earnings, all from the palm of your hand. And for those looking to perfect their sound, check out Mixia. This powerful tool allows you to put the finishing touches on your tracks in minutes, ensuring they sound polished and professional every time. But that's not all. DistroKid has just launched a brand new feature called Instant Share, allowing you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, and more. With Instant Share, you can keep your music streaming at the highest quality while making the best impression possible. So what are you waiting for? Elevate your music career today with DistroKid and unlock a world of possibilities. Possibilities that I know all about because I've been using DistroKid for years. It's seriously great. If you haven't used it before, you're going to love it. And One Hit Thunder listeners get an exclusive offer, 30% off your first year with DistroKid by signing up at distrokid.com slash VIP slash One Hit Thunder. That's distrokid.com slash VIP slash One Hit Thunder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is, that is interesting when you when you when you isolate it like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, otherwise I would never mistake <laughs> rubber like to- possum kingdom for for hashpipe for hashpipe. But yeah, that baseline and that guitar riff are one and the same. Yeah, and the thing and but the thing also with it is it's not just you know you have all these pieces you have you have an amazing riff off of like a weird E chord and then you have the and the thing that I love that fucks so many people up who are unfamiliar with the song, because I've tried to play this with bands and with other guitarists oh, and whatever. the time signature's the t- all over the place. Exactly. The time <laughs> signature's fucking... So if you listen, like, this song was sampled by Girl Talk yeah. on one of his albums, and he's using it. So he only takes... You know, obviously he goes, Dan it, Dan it, Dan it, Dan it. It does it once, and then you go back, and then you have to... Twice. The second time. So, like, yeah. it, it flips back and forth and fucks with people. So the drummer has to know what the fuck's going on and whatever. So when Girl Talk samples it, he only takes the the time he does it twice and, and loops that, which is, like, crazy to me as a DJ because, <laughs> like, you have to know, like, otherwise, if you try to just play it through and, like, do it over the instrumental... It's going to throw off your beat. You're gonna, yeah. yeah, you can't. You can't. So it only works with... It's just... I don't know. Everything about... Everything about... Everything in that... Like I said, it's it, nothing is wasted in that album. That was on the last Girl Talk album, which mm-hmm. is over a decade now. We need a new. He's Girl pulling Talk. a fucking toadies. Yeah, we need another Girl Talk well, record. It's, it's well, it, Girl I Talk did an original record with fucking. I want to say Meek Mill, but I'm probably wrong. But he did like his own original beats, and then had rappers over it. And it was like an EP, and it didn't really work. Yeah, in my opinion, I wasn't as as thrilled about it. But it, you know, it was artistically, it was cool. But do you but, think he also missed his time now? Because now you've got YouTubers that are doing their own little mashups. Yeah, you got and, DJ Cumberbun and dude. all. Yeah, he's, he's amazing. But 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 he, I mean, Girl Talk definitely has his own niche. And, you know, ba- uh, based on what I've heard, I-, I don't know if he still has it, but his computer was not the most reliable thing in the world <laughs> for when he did live performances, which cracks me up. And his, his software was really fucking old. But that's like, that was the one thing I didn't like about Girl Talk. It's like my brother paid a pretty hefty penny to see Girl Talk live. And he wanted me to come with. And I'm like, if he was mixing the songs up there, it's one thing, but I'm pretty sure he just hits play. 
well, and, he, like, what add he does, some yeah, stuff he on the adds, keyboard. So, so I've tried. I tried to play around with that because I wanted to yeah. learn mashups on that level. Yeah, and uh, it, and it literally is almost like you know how if you would like diagram a sentence. Yeah. in English class, like that is what he does with with sample clips. So all of the work is done ahead of time in building the samples and quantifying them, making them on beat. Because he's taking, you know, instrumentals from bands that played with like live instruments and like putting rap lyrics or something over top of it usually and rap beats underneath it for more punch. And it all has to like link up. So, and it's the when it links up correctly, like I, the two examples I always use for like where I just think girl talk at his peak. And it was um, lip gloss mixed with the breakdown from one, one by yeah. Metallica. <laughs> yes, and uh, the opening of his last album with War Pigs with Move Bitch by yeah. Ludacris. Oh my god! Like yeah. I was like, I could listen to just that for mm-hmm. a full song. Like if you just put out War Pigs beat with Ludacris rapping over top of it, I would have been fine with that for four straight minutes. Absolutely. And you know what's <laughs> great is that uh, this is a fun little story from my personal life. I used to have Eagles Philadelphia Eagles season tickets, and we would tailgate beforehand. So. I, once the, the, you know, close to the end of the time that I had these tickets, I had my DJ speakers. Yeah. So I would bring them in the car and plug the power into my cigarette lighter in the car and like my SUV and like just blast the fuck out of the parking lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> so we were playing, I don't know, at that time, like that Girl Talk album was very popular, but we were playing, you know, hip hop and other different things and techno, whatever, just shit from my iPod. So this guy who was tailgating next to us was very angry that we were playing uh that type of music because clearly he did not like urban music or <laughs> urban people, people? I was gonna yes say, uh, there's uh, usually a correlation there absolutely was a correlation <laughs> i mean this guy was a racist piece of shit but so anyway so he was like okay oh, so i so i literally put on girl talk and it starts off with damn it and he's like yeah black sabbath and it was like get out the way and he was just like oh you motherfuckers and, you know he got so mad he just like went in so that was you know i trolled him with girl talks so that was amazing and then he went and yelled at the food monsters that were swimming in his pool yes <laughs> uh so i'm looking here to see if there's anything. but girl talk is back let me just say that he's playing like festivals this year oh sweet yeah so i go- want a new record governor's I want a ball new in new york so city bad. is where he's going to be with miley cyrus i think <laughs> nice mm-hmm. uh but yeah so like the lyrical breakdown the so i went on rap genius because that's like my favorite site to analyze lyrics is like clicking on the the link the blue hyperlinks to see like what people's like fun facts are about certain lyrics. oh yeah and there's a whole like fan theory that this song is about a vampire and it, when you're reading the lyric breakdowns, it's really funny because it'll be like, in this scene, the entity is trying to convince, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, it'll just go through like, the whole thing and it'll be like, or it's a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I mean, yeah, okay. And like, you know what? As someone who's always looking for an excuse to hear this song. I'll throw it on some Halloween mixes. Sure, it's a fucking vampire song. Yeah, you know, okay, there you go. October 31st, here we come. Possum <laughs> Kingdom blowing out my windows as I'm handing out Well, candy I mean, kids. yeah, and the fact that it could be a serial killer. Yeah, it could be so many things, but yeah. it's, I've, it's funny because, uh, I mean, some people may have noticed I'm not Chris. Uh, so Chris is you know doing stuff with Punchline right now, and mm-hmm. he's a little tied up. Uh, I think by the time this is coming out, he's like literally going to be playing Anti-Fest like a day or two later. So, oh, wow. you know. They're getting ready. And I was like, hey, I'm going to do a couple episodes while you're doing punchline stuff, if that's cool. And I was like, I'm going to record an episode with my friend AJ about the toadies. And he goes, oh, I hate that song. So that's perfect. Oh, nice. Because I know you love that song. <laughs> like, <laughs> but I'm hoping that him listening to our 
love of this song will maybe make him change his mind a little well, bit. Well, you know, and 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 that that goes to show is like how you know I think you kind of have to, like you mentioned, your first introduction to rock music had to be so formative as in utero being one of those because that is like a typical like Steve Albini produced it right so you have like that big black influence just Chicago noise and like obviously like they were trying Nirvana was trying to fucking make something antithetical to Nevermind the poppiness of it so you have that like the feedback and just the gut and the guttural noises like on Tourette's yeah and shit like that well that's the I'm gonna sound like such a hipster but even as a kid I lean towards in utero. Yeah. Like I, I was handed both of those albums at the same time, not knowing anything about the band. And my instinct was like, okay, these, like I liked the big singles on nevermind. Cause mm-hmm. like at that point I was listening to like Y 100 or whatever, like mainstream, like alternative radio. So like I would hear smells like teen spirit and in bloom and stuff, but I pretty much stopped listening to that album around Polly or like a little bit past that. Yeah. Cause I was like, meh, but for me, like in utero, I would listen to from start to finish. The only one that I couldn't get into for a long time was the Radio Friendly Shifter Unit. Oh, Radio um, Friendly Unit yeah. Shifter. That's hilarious because that is the song that I opened my finest hour on Radio 104. I got to be like, yeah. before I worked at Radio 104.5, I got to uh, host a show uh, as, as a listener and say like, all right, this is my hour of music that I love. And I specifically opened with Radio Friendly Unit Shifter yeah. to be an asshole because <laughs> it's just... Yeah. And now I love it. Yeah. But like, I used to be like, God damn, this song's five minutes long. It's not catchy. It's frustrating. Again, we're going to, I'm going back to like a Clusterman reference, but like, he even talks about how like that album, Kurt Cobain's whole point was like, people are analyzing my lyrics too much. So I'm just going to write about books, completely oblivious to the fact that now people are going to analyze why these books. Right. (laughs) Right. But I went to the library and got out perfume to read Scentless Apprentice (laughs) source. But like, I'm talking about like society as a whole. Sure. We act like that album was just intentionally trying to not have hit singles, but like all apologies, <laughs> like like there's so penny royalty. Like there are so many catchy songs right. on there. Well, yeah, and, but and, we jump to like serve the servants and scentless apprentice and and radio uh, radio friendly unit shifter, shifter mm-hmm. as like well the whole album's trying to like and Tourette's yeah like yeah there's a couple of those but like. Never mind had those too. Like sure. the the whole breakdown of drain you with the fucking squeaks and yeah and territorial pissing like yeah. that song is crazy yeah that was like the song that I loved on that record right like I almost hated the song Polly because it slowed down everything before I could get to like the song that I, I was really I don't into. need to breathe or I'm a kid yeah still this day I lean into in utero because I I just I love don't get me wrong I love never mind yeah but I think like on a plane and something in the way and stuff just never really connected with me and they still really don't yeah. like it. well i mean they they you can tell like you can hear even in the noise the the beatle influence and like the pop, just the love of pop music like even yeah. fucking abba like dave grohl has an abba shirt you love they love pop music so and that's i think that that's the thing that it almost sucks because i feel like nirvana would still be here if they weren't coming up at a time where like liking pop music was the least cool thing that you could <laughs> do as a right. musician right <laughs> like, well that's like, yeah like love buzz or you know the single the single they released for sub pop off of bleach like that that cover the yeah. shocking blue cover you know it, it, it is it, that's poppy as fuck i mean about a girl yeah like, right like he, that kurt, is a kurt was, song. kurt was fucking embarrassed by about a girl <laughs> yeah, because like, of how poppy he's like i don't know if we should put this because he was embarrassed of what other people would think but yeah you're absolutely right like it is such a it's such of all the songs that nirvana ever put out 
that is the most Lennon McCarthy influenced song that they've ever written. Yeah. Like it is that is like early Beatles. And I just want to point out that you said Lennon McCarthy, which is like communist as yeah. fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Listen. No, I know. Anybody who's listened to me talk on any podcast knows that I can't <laughs> say names to save my life. But uh <laughs> but yeah, like I, I think that it's so and I, I know that sounds like it's a lot of tangents, but A, that's mostly what happens on every episode of One Hit Hunter. But also I think that really analyzing the aesthetic of what was happening because I think that the Toadies also would have had a little bit more success. It's funny to me that they were like an opening act for Bush because I feel like that's probably the band that was in a weird way in the exact same bubble that they were in where it was like grunge is over, but it's inspired these other bands who aren't coming from that same level of anger and angst but like they really want to be coming from that level of anger and sure. angst yeah but like but I the toadies i mean the toadies based on the time they formed were, were ahead of the game yeah. yeah but but didn't break until later like you said like even 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 recording it and then it actually getting to the charts took forever forever so like they have the authenticity but yeah but bush but is a band bush as well because i feel like bush also released their album not not the starting in 89 part but i'm pretty sure 16 like stone. 16 stone came out in like 94 but it, none of the singles really started hitting until 95 96 right like there and i mean talk of, say what you will about bush I, I mean they definitely fell off but like that record that 16 stone record was just hit after hit after hit well, after and, hit and and it's funny that you bring this up because like it, it was released in december of 94 um but uh 16 stone but that is the album that i've been equating in my head rubberneck to all not track for track but like just on a level of like how many singles they had how many should have been hits yeah and like how good it is cuz 16 stone yeah it has has all these good songs that it has like kind of a I want. I don't want to say. Like it feels like almost like a Nirvana ripoff. Well, I mean that's what they got labeled as. Right. They were like the post grunge wannabe. Yeah, because he was like he was like the pretty boy with the long hair. Which is a shame because like I will still stay. There's. It's funny because the songs that I thought were the best singles, like as a kid, it was all about like Machine Head. Right. And it was all about Glycerine. Yeah. But like now, like as an adult, I keep coming back to come. Uh, yeah, come down. Come down. Because I'm like yeah. come down. Is like well, you probably have the the attention span for that song. Well, <laughs> but I'm like, man, like, you know, we talked about this on the Breeders episode, but like, talk about a song where like every instrument is doing what it needs to do to make that song work. Yeah, like that really the, slow, like yeah, like the guitar stuff, the bass line that just keeps like going. The like, it is a beautiful, beautiful song that like. I like. I feel like this is like one of those things that people say all the time because there's no way to back it up. I feel like that if Kurt Cobain was alive and heard that song, that would be a song that he was like, "Yo, this song's great," because like it has that. Like I feel like it is getting to what Nirvana was, which was like this challenging grunge music, but unashamed of its poppiness, mm. which I think was what secretly he wanted to be able. To, he I think which is secretly, why he wanted to do unplug so bad because he wanted yeah. his music to be taken seriously. Yeah, and yeah. I think that. I think that he would have hated most of that record, but I think he would have been like, man, come down is like, it's hit. Cause like, I think what he, he it's, it's been documented that he loved the songs by the Foo Fighters that he had heard. Yes. And like, I think the Foo Fighters is another band that falls into that post grunge vibe where it was, it was that same anger and rage that you had on a super unknown or a facelift or a, you know, a nevermind and in utero. But like, 
unashamed to be poppy as fuck and being like, no, we're writing songs for the radio. Right. Like grunge was all about, no, we're too cool to be on the radio. And then you have these bands like, no, that's the exact place we want this well, music. Yeah. And there are people you know who come from the Gene Simmons school of rock where it's like, you know, I'm writing music to like pick up chicks and like make money and yeah. da, 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 da. And you know, there, there's absolutely an element of that. But then, you know, I think grunge was one, not one of the first times because you had punk too, but like one it's one of the first times in the mainstream that you had these people who were who were who didn't expect it. Yeah. Genuinely. Especially all the bands from Seattle because they were just doing their own thing, you know, in the rain and <laughs> I think the big I think the big difference is like if we're talking punk, we're talking like late 70s early 80s punk. Okay. Actively I think would have refused radio play. Like we're doing everything in their power to not have it, whereas I think grunge just it never even went past anyone's brainwaves that someone would put it on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, cause, yeah, cause there are, so like in the, end, the late seventies, I mean, you didn't have DIY uh, indie labels and no. stuff like that. Really, I mean, you had what the Sex Pistols, like on bouncing around labels, but EM, EMI ended up and uh, and uh, and then the Ramones just and the Ramones were on Sire, but like no one, like Sire wasn't like really backing. Like I feel like you look back on it now, I, and I have to double check this, but I think I, I would imagine that the Ramones probably sold more records starting in the late 80s early 90s from people buying their back catalog yeah. after the fact oh, absolutely. than like because like I listen to Blitz Creep Bop and that song does not sound like a song from the 70s no. to me. that sounds like a 90s song yeah. like I'm like okay yeah this is because it was on night it was like this song that was 20 years older than everything else that 90s radio was playing but they still were like yo this is the music we're playing well like, yeah and a lot of, a lot of those bands like I was just I was just reading about uh you know the the resurgence of Iggy Pop Lust for Life like yeah. around the time of Train Spotting because of Train Spotting and then the, the the subsequent video and then like almost a decade later the the Carnival Cruise or whatever it was line ads and stuff like that yeah. so like there is that Kind of, you know, you go back and like re, you know, learn about these bands that were influential to some people, but those people just happened to form bands. Yeah. And so now they have a platform. Like I always loved when like Dave Grohl wear a Buzzcock shirt to like the award show, or you know, Kurt, uh, you know, Offspring wore a Germ shirt or something. Like you would learn about these seminal bands that were maybe only important. Uh, at the time to like the people who saw them at the clubs or lived in the area of LA or whatever like I wouldn't know who the fuck the germs were if Pat Smear didn't jo join Nirvana or well, and that's the thing that I think we live in this great time where I, I have, with a click of a mouse I can find almost any song that I want and there's a lot of great things from that but like I'm sure you get the same shit that I do for still being a physical media person. Yes. But especially with records, like, I'm, I grew, we both grew up in that generation where, like, if you want to find new music, it's the liner notes. You, you really like MXPX? Then fucking look at who they're thanking and then go buy a NoFX record and, like, you know, like, right. Or like, comps. We yeah. grew up in the era of comps. Like, that was just, it was so crucial to the bands that I discovered was like, all right, who does who is Green Day thanking? Right, because I want to check those bands out too. Who like who is this band like? And that's so gone now. And, like, and still to this day, there's kind of within indie scenes, uh, you know, at least through the '90s and early 2000s, that whole idea of selling out. Or, yeah, and I think that that's the thing that makes these bands again to me so interesting. This Toadies, Foo Fighters, Bush era. I, I would even toss like Veruca Salt in there. Sure. Like it was almost like there was you had this this pile of grunge bands from from the early '90s with like Hole and and uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Soundgarden mm -hmm. that like they just happened to make it. Sure, no one was like charging forward like we've got to get signed. It just happened to be this thing. It spoke to a bunch of people, 
And then it's like this whole next wave. Like you can't tell me Veruca Salt wasn't inspired by like the Riot Girl stuff and the whole stuff that was happening a couple years earlier. Yeah, Bikini Kill and Babes yeah. in Toyland and all that. Like yeah. it totally makes sense for that to be what led to them doing their thing. But you're you're going from a generation. It all leaps in generations. So you're going from the the grunge generation that was raised on that '90s or that '80s punk rock aesthetic of you don't need record labels, you don't need radio, you just do the indie label and that's the thing. But then you have this whole other generation that's growing up on the music that started that aesthetic and then became successful. And it's like, well, you can still be artistic and successful. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So then all of a sudden you've got people where now it's not... I, I just want to be on this. I want to be on this record label because this is the record label that I want to be on. But I think that, like, when you get to 94, 95, 96, that's when people start saying, I want this person to produce my record because they produced this person's well, record. And like, that's how the Toadies got their producer yeah. is, is they heard the Breeders, which you've, you just yeah. did the episode of or released the episode of. You know, they, they heard that and they were like, We like that sound. That's what, and that's the producer for the yeah. Rubberneck. And I think that I really think, because I can't imagine, I'm sure, like, yeah, obviously there was producers that people wanted to work with in the 70s and the 80s and and for I mean as long as music's been around you obviously there's there's producers that people want to work with. Sure. But I really feel like the 90s was that point where it didn't it wasn't that you wanted to work with the biggest name most famous producer. You wanted to work with the producer who produced your favorite record. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so and and that, I think that that it's it all like bleeds into this very unique Sound that I, I think uh, I'm going to use a wrestling reference. Okay. Uh, so strap in. Um, <laughs> That's the reference? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> there's an era of wrestling that a lot of people hate. And it's the era that I grew up in. And it's my it's probably still my favorite era, which was called the New Generation Era, which was a very brief, like, two-year period. And it was when Hulk Hogan and Macho Man Randy Savage and all of these big names that had dominated the 80s into the early 90s had all retired from wrestling. Okay. They would later pop up again in uh, WCW, but like at the time oh, they okay. were done. And WWE had to completely start from scratch and rebuild what they had. So they had Shawn Michaels, yep. Bret Hart, British Bulldog, and then a bunch of wacky-ass characters. Like you start getting like... Duke the drums, Dumpster Drossy and Erwin uh, R. Scheister, the IRS man, and like all of these wacky ass characters because they're just like, we got to fill this with something. Right. And people hate it because it was so directionless. Yeah. And then like the Attitude Era happened and then everybody was a wrestling fan because they're watching like Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Rock and it's like now and, like, two. Like DX and yeah, all like, that shit. Okay. Everything changed. I feel like this era of the 90s, which is the exact same time period that the new generation was happening with wrestling, was something similar where like you had this momentous thing. It was the biggest thing that the music industry had ever seen and they had no control over it. Like it just happened naturally and then all of these bands are gone. Yeah. They break up or members die or they just fade into like a five year hiatus before their next record. And then you're just like, well, we got to fill it with something. Yeah. So, so like you're signing the toadies with like, I almost feel like this ties back into an earlier episode about space hog where it's like, how did space hog get signed so quickly? I think that they just needed bands at this point. Yeah. Like everyone who was making money for the record company disappears. And now you're in a panic mode to like fill those slots. Sure. And I think that that's where, for me, I'm like, I love this time period because record labels 
are med dashing to sign whoever they can sign because they need something. And like most of these records failed. Like the unfortunately, most of these records failed. Yeah. But if it wasn't for all of these bands disappearing, we would have never gotten like a primitive radio gods album. Like you tell me, and in any other time period that a major record label would sign that band, right? Like, like the Toadies, like all of these bands, I think hit at a perfect time where the biggest thing in music was happening, and then it just went away in a matter of months. Yeah, and it was like we got to fill this, and and that, and I think a lot of that is is you know kind of a precursor to what's happening now. I mean, at least maybe it's just my age, but I look at some of the artists that are like popular now. And the way that they're getting popular now, and it's almost like, and this is more in like hip hop and stuff like that. Like, no, I'm not talking like today's music, it's like, like TikTok rappers. Exactly. <laughs> it's it, these songs are getting popular through like alternative means. Like, the, all it's almost as if we're now in an era where the record companies were so scared that like they would become obsolete, and now they almost are. Yeah. I mean, you can say that there are bands that are succeeding because of record company backing and whatever, but I'm almost like thinking that like. The, the music that is is popular it's like it's not even it's not even the songs that are popular it's like 30 second clips yeah i mean i, I i'm not even going to shit on the song cuz i actually really like the song and i love the person of little nodzax i knew like, the, i knew you were yeah, going there yeah like everything about him like everything that i read with interviews from him and i see from him i'm like he just is a good dude who totally understands what his career is mm-hmm. And he's not sitting there trying to be like, I'm going to be the biggest rapper in the world. He's like, I'm going to ride this the best I can because I found a niche and like, let's see what happens. Right. And everyone's trying to write him off. Like, I think people are so quick to write him off as like, well, that's a one hit wonder. That's a, a novelty hit. And they could be right. But I also think that he has the potential to like, and not in this exact same vein, but I think he could also be like a Weird Al Yankovic. You know I mean, like Weird Al comes out in 83 and everyone's like, okay, well, this will be maybe one or two records, and then no one's going to care. Right. And now dude's selling out, like, arenas. Yeah. Still. Yeah. 40 years later. Like, well, yeah, he finds ways to, to to stay relevant and change with the times. And and I think that Little Nas X is a smart enough dude and has a good enough personality that he will maybe not always be the rapper Little Nas X, but I think he's going to find his niche to stay in the public eye because he's just a likable dude. Sure, he could be like a reality star or an internet thing or host host something like Vanilla Ice hosting like fucking, you know, home improvement shows. Exactly, <laughs> but like he is absolutely one of those people who all of the odds were against him. No record label was ever going to sign Lil Nas X. Mm-mm. But like people caught on to a song, it was catchy, and then like, I mean, country radio did more for that song than anything. Sure. Now, do I think that it deserved to like beat one of the prettiest songs that's ever existed, One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boyz II Men, for like the longest time a song has been a number one hit. Not really. But, no. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm glad that it had, like, you know what? That song's gorgeous, and that song will always be important to me. I have very fond memories of that song. That song came out at a time when I was first really understanding death uh-huh. through like just family member, like family friends. And I, when I hear that song, I think about that. So that song's always going to have a place in my heart, but like, you know what? If the number one song in America, like in the history of songs being on like the Billboard charts mm-hmm. or whatever, is going to go to like a twenty-something openly gay hip hop country artist, I'm okay with that because sure. that is fucking awesome. Yeah, <laughs> like, absolutely. Like, I mean, well, he's got he's you know he, with the, with that description, you got your foot in enough pools of uh, interest. 
to to yeah. at least rally people. But yeah, it's so it is. It, but it, I think that 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 really speaks to what we were talking about with one hit wonders is that like you don't know where they're going to come from and like are they going to be in the right place at the right time? Like, is he in the right place at the right time? Yeah, like because Old Town Road would not have worked. Uh, in any time in the past, I can't predict the future, but in any yeah. time in the past, that song would not have worked no. anywhere. You need it TikTok, and you need it YouTube. Yes. You need it, both of those things to be at their peak you for need, that to work. And you needed country music to become, to be so bastardized by the Jimmy Buffett drinking partying crowd and become yeah. like, this, not like you know what Nashville used to be, but becoming just like a pop pop with a twang like literally country music is pop with a twang anymore and you needed almost a decade of that building up into the public consciousness for that song so like yeah everything has to everything has to have and then pulling in a billy ray cyrus who represents like country music when it was at its peak right like because i was talking to someone about this the other day a one hit wonder in his own right yeah which again he's a so kind of in the same we just did the rick springfield episode but in the same vein like Billy Ray Cyrus, in certain circles, is absolutely not a one-hit wonder. No. Like, like, you look at his country chart standing, and that dude had hits for days. Right. But, like, as far as you and I are concerned, as, like, people who didn't listen to country music in the 90s, it's Achy Breaky Heart. That's yeah. it. That's and, for me, and for me, it's not even Achy Breaky Heart. It's Achy Breaky Song. By Weird Al, yeah. Right, which introduced me to I was like, why is he so annoyed by the song that I've never heard? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. is like, without planting these little seeds and letting them grow and get to the point whether it's you know the the popularization in, in culture of of um, you know country music or whether it's the the entire grunge movement um, and like stuff like feedback being in popular music like the Beatles introducing feedback you know and uh, I feel fine yeah without that do we have grunge without you know what I mean like yeah no it, I mean I think that that's and I mean at the end of the day do we have punk do we have punk music without like Chuck Berry you know no. what I mean? Like, no. like it's it's all it all connects, and like that's very often at this point. Like, you know, I, I produce this show, I produce two other podcasts, and then I host my own show. Mm. So I've gotten to the point now where people come to me for podcasting advice pretty yes. regularly, and like I feel like such a dick. But like my first piece of advice is like, don't expect anyone's going to listen to your show. No, but if you keep putting out content people will find it. Yes. And like that's what it's about is like you said you lay those seeds and like prime example bouncing all the way back to the very beginning of this. Single came out in August of 2004 uh, of 1994 and did not hit its peak until uh, November of 1995. Well over a year. Yeah. So like then the flip side is you have like the the <laughs> the anomaly of the space hog where it's like they formed in 94 they had a record out in 95 and like before 96 was over it was like the biggest song in in the world wow like but then like how do you follow that up how do you follow up that crazy trajectory sure so like it, it's always i feel like in the long run it's the bands that plant those seeds or or you know to to use the phrase that chris says a lot like pay their dues mm-hmm. you you put in that time and i i am trying to remember who it was it was a uh, was listening to a comedian i cannot for the life of me remember who the comedian was um he was the basis of the movie van wilder burt kreischer I was, okay. to, I was listening to an interview with burt kreischer and they were talking about how he's like selling out these comedy clubs now and they asked him what his secret was. Like, what's the secret to being a success? And he's like, look, I lucked out. I did a bit about a thing that happened to me that got very, very popular. The the famous I'm the machine story of him getting drunk on, on his trip, school trip to Russia and like getting involved with the Russian mob and all this crazy stuff. He goes, and that song, 
He's like, that whole like 10 minute bit blew up and people were sharing it and people were talking about it. But here's the thing. I had 10 years of other material that was there for people to discover to prove that I wasn't just this one bit monkey. He goes, that is so much like every time that you put out something and you feel like no one's listening, it doesn't mean that you're not going to have this moment where it hits and people come and check out the back catalog. Right. And if you have a good back catalog, you have a good chance of success. If you're, he goes, I feel like it's so much harder if the first thing you put out is massive, you have nothing to keep people hanging on until your next thing. Right. And like, I think that that works with music. It works Mm. with podcasting. It works with Everything. Look, Van Gogh sold what one painting in his lifetime. Yeah. I mean, so you know, no, that you know, he died unsuccessful. But, <laughs> <laughs> but again, like you know, there's nothing that's stopping the Toadies from putting out a record in 2020 that somehow has another big hit. They're no longer one hit wonder, and then people who are discovering the Toadies for the first time have eight albums to look back on. Right. <laughs> well, that's what I loved about you know, like these these bands that had their did their time with the indie label and then broken the mainstream like if you discover green day through dookie or through um yeah through dookie yeah you go back and you have kerplunk and 1039 sloppy ass. and i question i wonder if they would have been like they are arguably one of the biggest bands in the world right now absolutely and i wonder if that would have been the case if dookie was their first record because they toured on that album for like two years right but during that two years you had two full-length albums of stuff that you were also discovering on top of those 14 songs that you would become obsessed about. Yes. Um, and like, I mean, it's based on the record sales of insomnia, insomniac when that came out, it was very possible that could have been the end of that band's career. <laughs> like if, if that was their second album, they wouldn't have, I don't think they would have been as big as they are now. Right. And I think a good example is like, I love them, but you look at Weezer. Yeah. I mean like, Weezer's still going strong. I'm not saying that Weezer is not like a powerhouse of a band, but like you compare the the popularity of Weezer during that first album and then Pinkerton happens and then they're just gone right. for a long time. And, and they yeah. could have been gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and yeah, and that, and that's the thing. I mean, you know, how much of it is uh and I am a terrible Weezer fan for not knowing this, but uh you know, the, they lost their one member um Matt Sharp. Matt Sharp, yes. Um you know, and you see the difference and oh, 100%. as as some, I hate to I hate to drop this but as someone who who worked on the radio Weezer station for iHeartRadio like <laughs> and spent hours listening to interviews and editing them and like learning so I could like put something together you know to to work on that which was a passion project cuz I love Weezer but you you're sitting there and you, you wonder like all right the green album I love it like red album's pretty good like da, 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 but like you do you have this inconsistency not, I don't know about with quality because I feel like every Weezer song has the same quality. It's just, does it are the things that what Rivers is writing about connecting with people? And I think that's really what it comes down to is like, is this connecting with a, a, a majority amount of people, you know, a majority amount of the time? So that was the Toadies episode. We got, we talked about them enough. Uh, I think so. So, AJ, real quick, do you have anything that you want to promote? Buy Rubberneck by the Toadies if you don't own it. Okay, good um, promotion. And on, <laughs> and honestly, all their but no. Uh, so yeah, I just I I have a, a couple DJ 
thing, like I guess I don't know if they're channels or what the fuck they are on Mixcloud. Uh, so which which nobody listens to, but Mixcloud, if you go on, uh, look up AJ Santini or you look up uh, Surviving Life. I put out uh, like a mixtape every week of just like random ass fucking music that makes no sense, uh, basically in the style of a cassette, like forty five minutes to side. Yeah, uh, not you know to reference Super Drag, um, <laughs> and uh, and but yes, and and just the, and that's really it. So yeah. All right, well, go check out some of AJ's stuff. Obviously, it's going to be linked in the show notes, and uh, we'll be back with another episode of One Hit Wonder coming soon. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Vifalios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. You can hear Punchline's cover of Weezer's The World Has Turned and Left Me Here off their new EP, Songs of 94, available on Spotify. Due to unexpected global pandemic, Anti-Fest has been postponed, and we will let you know when it's back on. Visit punchlion.com for updates, as well as news, merch, and other upcoming tour dates. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunder at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll be back next week with another episode of One Hit Thunder. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure. I do like the shadows. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzer. WMMS. Cleveland. The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles. The Wrath of the Buzzard. P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts.